Evil is eating our culture like a snack. If you've ever ate pistachios, you know, you kind of grab a few of them up, put them in your mouth, chew around, crunch on your teeth until you break the shell off, and then spit the shells out and swallow the actual pistachio itself. Or if you've ever perhaps ate crawdads, you know, you kind of get yourself a bowl, a whole pile of them, pick them up, rip them in half. Maybe you eat the meat, maybe you just want to suck the juices out, but then when you're done, you discard the carcass into a pile. That's really what's going on with our culture. And the time for having a backbone and standing up for holy principles is now. But if we're going to be able to do that, then we have to have eyes that look for God's meaning and not just wait around to respond to whatever the festering chaos of the world is thrown at us. Because the festering chaos always wants us to look through the lenses that it has prepared for us because that keeps us away from the gospel. But we must pursue deeper meaning. And in this message, we are going to examine the differences between feelings and meaning. Now, this is a continuation in our study of the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he had eyes for excellence and meaning, and not just the feelings in a moment. His God is the holy author of meaning, and our God is the holy author of meaning. Therefore, Nehemiah and ourselves should be holy and achieve great and meaningful things, just as our God is holy. So, I want to open up with this question. What do you have eyes for? What do you have ears for? Do you have eyes that even value achievement? The idolatrous spirit possessing our culture has eyes for destruction, and it wants us to concede that destruction is good. And the people of God must defeat this. We, we have to defeat this evil. And we have to help liberate people who are possessed by these evil ideas. We want to bring them into the gospel. We don't want approval from the pagans, but instead we want to love them past where they're at and bring them into the kingdom of God. And the people of God, if we are to defeat evils in this world, we must offer something which is better. And there is only one alternative that is better, and that is the gospel of Christ Jesus. And God cares how we organize our lives and whether or not we appreciate meaning. God cares whether or not our lives have meaning, and God desires that we pursue excellence and achievement because these things are extensions of holiness. And God has taught us that influencing the world can only happen once we have our personal lives in order. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and let's open up in prayer as we get into our message. Gracious Heavenly Father, wherever we may be, Lord, I pray that you come, open our hearts and minds that we could see with eyes that are of you. Lord, let us look to this world, not on the terms that the world wants us to see, but instead through the terms by which you desire for us to see. Lord, open us up that we may have a firm backbone that is solid with our feet firmly planted on your principles. Lord, be with each and every one of us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So let's jump right into Nehemiah chapter 2. And I, I love Nehemiah. If you want to go back, I have the, the first sermon in this series. It's already out there. Um, it's called How to Use a Sword and Trial. And today we're picking up with the second message in the series called Eyes for Meaning. So Nehemiah 2, it reads as follows. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served to him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad before in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this can only be sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? And so I prayed. I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen was also sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king. And I set him a date. And then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may arrange and grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. So within this first passage of the scripture, we're going to take just a little break, and we'll jump back in in verse 9 here in a moment. What we find is Nehemiah, he is somebody who is quite phenomenal in that he has eyes to see something no one else does. Nehemiah, as we'll learn from this, he doesn't go before the Jewish priesthood, the nobility of the Jewish people, any really of the Jewish people at all, not the scholars, the experts. Instead, he takes something upon himself which no one else has eyes to even see as being relevant. Nehemiah realizes that there's destruction in the world around him. And in our day and time now, there's a lot of destruction in our world. But whenever you don't have a clear way to identify it, when you don't have a clear name for it, um, it can be very hard to see. And Nehemiah, he was able to see through a web of chaos to realize that something bad was going on. The shame and distress that was going on for his people, it was a lot more than just about some architecture that was crumbling. It was about something much deeper. The people have God had forgotten their meaning. And Nehemiah himself is a very interesting character. You see, Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer to this Persian king. And now a cupbearer, they would be somebody who they stay close to the king throughout everything the king does because they taste all of his food. Um, Nehemiah, he has to, to look a certain way. He has to be you know, wearing posh clothes because the king doesn't surround himself with ugliness. And Nehemiah, if anybody would have been paid off to say, oh, just be happy with your people in living in ruins, you have a great life, Nehemiah could have been very happy with that. But he wasn't because there was no meaning in it. He needed something more than just posh luxury around him. He needed something that drew him closer to God. He saw something that others would not see. And what's fascinating here is he goes before the king. He kind of breaks protocol a little bit, looking sad before the king. But this is really the only opportunity. No other of the men of Israel are going to stand up. No, nobody is standing up to the plate. They've all gotten comfortable. They've all gotten comfortable saying, well, let's have business as usual. Nehemiah, you're in the palace. Why are you upset about this? You know, let the experts handle stuff. Let the priests be in charge of revival. Let the scholars and stuff have all this, have all the, the representation of the Jewish people that the Jewish people need. But Nehemiah realizes it's not good enough. Nehemiah wants to challenge the status quo, not because he wants destruction, but because he wants to raise things up. There really are two reasons in this world why people challenge the status quo, why they challenge systems around them. One of them is the sinful impulse that says, well, I want to live out in a world of destruction. And you've seen this happen throughout the 20th century. A lot of times people will sell, they'll say, well, there's, there's oppression, there's class warfare, there's systems of power. We need to tear them down. 
But history tells us this is generally done by wolves in sheep's clothing who don't actually want to take people to a better society, but they just want to be the tyrants in charge. And usually things get worse when somebody starts talking class warfare and power struggles. Usually that leads to some sort of dystopian hellscape. And when we look in our world right now, there are a lot of things which, which talk this, you know, let's challenge the status quo. But when you look at the fruits of it, the fruits of it, unfortunately, are very destructive. They're not challenging the status quo because they want to aspire to something higher, but instead because they want to lower things down. And you see this. There's a lot of talk about, you know, power struggle, dismantling the nuclear family and stuff that's just outright evil. Nehemiah, he is going to the king and he's breaking protocol and challenging the systems that be because he wants something higher. He's reaching up. And let's continue on just a little bit further. In verse 9 and 10, you find something which is fundamentally true about how the world works. Verse 9 and 10, it says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me, and when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verses 9 and 10 almost need to be a chapter themselves. This is so profound. It, it really does need bear here set around it so you can just isolate and see it for what it is. So often we read through the scriptures, especially some of the Old Testament books, which don't get a lot of attention. We kind of peel through them quickly, but verses 9 and 10 are so important. When Nehemiah finally makes his way down to the province beyond the river, what we find is Sanballat and Tobiah, they recognize immediately that this man is up to something different. Yeah, he's got the letters from the king, but Nehemiah hasn't fully announced his plan to anyone yet. And these men, they recognize that Nehemiah is not playing the game that everyone else is. He's unique among all the Jewish people. Even though he's not a prince, he's not some special Levite or something like that. He's nothing of any special sort. But Nehemiah is not playing the game of wait on the experts, wait on the officials, wait on the next, you know, public speech, wait on the next whatever it is, task force meeting, wait on the next debrief session. Nehemiah is not playing that game. And I call it a game because it is a game. A lot of times we sit around and listen to people with their straight brows, their mature discourse, and they act like they're serious, but they're not serious. They don't have eyes and ears to see what is really going on in the world. They don't have eyes, and there's, even if they do have eyes for it, maybe they're just not motivated to speak on it. Nehemiah was surrounded by people where all the institutions of the Jewish people lacked either the eyes to see God's meaning that God had in store for them, or they lacked the motivation to do anything about it. And to debate that is almost, you know, a meaningless debate because in principle, none of them were going to do anything about the shame and despair of the Jewish people. It took this cupbearer to the king to see that something needed to be done to elevate the people up, to bring the people back to a place of meaning. It took a guy whose life really didn't have much meaning, even though it had a lot of luxury. Nehemiah, he was supposed to just be some translucent figure, like a fixture. You know, he's the sort of person that would be dressed well. He'd be up there with the king, and he's, you know, the king is nice to him. Artaxerxes seems to like Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, you know, none of the other officials, if you're a prince from another empire coming over, you're not going to know this guy's name. You're not going to care to know his name. You're going to see right through him. 
He's not some Jewish scholar. He's not some Jewish historian. You're not supposed to know Nehemiah's name. He doesn't have the right credentials for you to know his name. He's just a cupbearer. But yet, his name marks one of the books in our Old Testament because he saw something no one else would. And what we find there in verse 10, when Sanballat and Tobias see this, it displeases them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Somebody is coming to seek the welfare of holiness, and somebody is bringing holiness and excellence and achievement back to the table. And evil people hate this. Evil people don't want you to talk about sin and holiness. The forces of evil in our world, they don't want you to come and seek the welfare of, of Jerusalem. They don't want you to seek the welfare of godly things. They want you to talk about what they want you to talk about. And we as the church, we need to find a backbone. And whenever people get displeased with us, you know, the gross tyranny gets grosser. We, we have to realize that a lot of times when you are pursuing truth, the world will hate you. They will ramp up the lies. They will twist. They will contort. They will foam at the mouth because they do not want you to seek the welfare of anything righteous. And we in the church today, the spiritual warfare we have going around, we have to realize we've got to speak the truth regardless of the fact that people will be displeased with us. They'll hate us. But let's get back into the text. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. And then I got up during the night. I and a few men with me. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And the only animal that I took was the animal I rode. And I went by night by the valley gate past the dragon spring and the, to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went down onto the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by the valley by night and inspected the wall. And I turned back to the, to the valley gate and I so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told I didn't tell the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were to do the work. Now, before we get into verse 17, which is a little bit time later when he actually shares his plan, it's important to note that Nehemiah does formulate a plan, and he sees something that none of these other class of people are seeing. The Jewish people as a whole, they, they're just they're fine living in ruins. They don't have eyes to see something deeper. And when I'm talking about having eyes to see and ears to hear, this is a very important concept because a lot of times in our world, even if you show people truth, they may not see it. Even if all the evidence, all the data is around them, a lot of times people will not see what is honest, true, and noble because they've been trained to see elsewhere. I have a dog. Um, some of you have seen my dog. He's a blue healer. He's a very smart dog. It's spooky how smart this dog is. And he has a lot of sclera in his eyes, so you can see where he's looking at. And sclera is the white in the eye, so you can tell exactly what this dog is looking at. And he has great vision, phenomenal vision. You can pull out a toy, and he knows the difference between what something plush looks like and something that's, you know, hard. Um, and he can even distinguish toys, even if they're a hard toy. But, you know, I'll ride him around in new towns and neighborhoods that we've never been in before, and he can recognize a dog two or three hundred yards away. But a couple of weeks ago, there was a snake on the porch, and it was a big fat snake, about five foot long. And I took Count to the door, and again, he's a, he's a cattle dog, so he's, he's learned to work with me. And I'm pointing outside at the, the snake, and he's kind of looking around like, what's going on? I see that your hand's making the gesture, but I don't see anything. He didn't see the snake. Why? Because he didn't have eyes for the snake. He has an eye for a dog a couple hundred yards away, but not for a snake. 
So I open the door and take him outside. And, you know, he's like, all right, we're going outside to do something. I can tell from your body language something's up. And, you know, Count gets over there to where the snake's at. And he starts kind of doing like dogs do. And he's kind of trampling on the snake, really. And it's like the snake was invisible to him. It's like he didn't even know it was there. And it wasn't until the snake started to strike at him and kind of coil like snakes do and make some of those little hissing sounds that the dog Count started to realize, whoa, there's a creature here. And I got to do dog stuff with this. So he starts finally barking at it and kind of snapping at it, wanting to play with it a little bit like dogs do. But it took him a while. He did not have eyes to see the snake like he had eyes for other things. And how we have eyes really is important to how we navigate the world. What we have eyes for, what we have ears for. You know, the world wants to give us a set of eyes and ears. It wants to say, ah, you need to look at your world through the lenses of the events of 1960 or the past few hundred years of your country, but nothing else. Um, no, we need to be looking at the world through the lenses of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Nehemiah, he looks through the world through the lenses of holiness. Tobiah and Sambalot, they're not really enemies of Nehemiah personally, though they, they do hate Nehemiah personally, but they don't hate him because he's this cupbearer named Nehemiah. They hate him because of the principles that he stands for. They hate him because of what he represents. This is why they hate the walls too. They hate what they represent. And Nehemiah, when he comes out and he faces Sambalot and Tobiah, you know, he has to stand firm on principles. And when he picks up a sword and a trial to fight them, he's not fighting someone who bullied him or someone who made him mad or someone who, you know, shortchanged him in some way. Nehemiah is fighting the enemies of God. He's fighting forces that hate the holy principles of God. And we have to realize there are people in our world today who hate the holy principles of God. Now, as Christians, we're convicted to love them, but that doesn't mean we bow down to them. It doesn't mean that we want their approval. We don't have to want them to like us. We have to make a distinction between the evil ideas people possess and the soul, and we have to preach the good news. There are some people who will not be receptive to that, and things can get quite nasty. But we as the church, we have to have a firm backbone and know where we stand, and we have to be able to see what God wants us to see. Let's go back to verse 17. And then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. This is fascinating because they didn't see it. Or if they did see it, they were not motivated to do anything about it. It had become, you know, invisible to them. They were not conscious of the trouble they were in to the point where they were moved to do anything. What you see happening here in verse 17 and 18 is a spiritual transformation for the people of God as their eyes are being opened to God and to what God wants for them. There's a spiritual awakening that Nehemiah leads. Yes, it's not because Nehemiah is some special guy, um, but it's because of what Nehemiah stands for, and it's because of what Nehemiah is preaching. God really is with him. In verse 18, he says, I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also that the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said to me, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. You know, you can't have unity without common good, and unity for unity's sake is a fake virtue. And we're held counterfeit and fake virtues. But Nehemiah, he sees something the others don't. But he opens their eyes to it rather quickly. He shines light on the truth around them. 
And for Nehemiah, there was something clear they could see. He said, look, look around you. Look at these walls. And their eyes were open to it. And it's amazing how simple it was to open their eyes to it. Um, but at the same time, just because it was simple didn't mean it happened. And it didn't happen by itself. It took generations. It took a cupbearer to the king who lived a very posh lifestyle, to, but it was a posh lifestyle without meaning. And he said, you know what? We're going to have meaning again. We're going to do something aspirational. We're going to achieve. We're going to challenge the status quo that says living in ruins is good enough. No, we're going to go up. We're going to reach up towards God. Our God is holy and excellent. Therefore, we should be as well. We shouldn't be weak and pitiful because our God is not weak and pitiful. We're made in his image, not to be something which is the opposite of his image, but to be something which reflects him. And there in verse 19, the villains, Sambalot and Tobiah, they come back in. Verse 19 says, When Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, if you remember early on, I, I said there are two reasons why people challenge the status quo. One is because they want destruction, and the other is because they want to hold everything accountable and reach up. When all the systems around you have failed, it's okay to challenge the system and say, let's go up. You're not just being destructive and lawless. They accuse Nehemiah of the exact opposite of what he's doing, although it is based in some amount of truth. Nehemiah is trying to resurrect and build a nation up under the nose of another king, and he's doing it with the king's money. However, he's not doing it for the sake of rebellion. He's doing it because he wants to pursue something excellent and holy. He wants to have those excellent and holy achievements in his life because that is what God calls and expects of us. But it's always fascinating. The enemies of the people of God, the enemies of God, the enemies of holiness and excellence, they do tend to spread lies about something which is the absolute opposite of the truth. But they somehow get away with it because they mask it in something which is a little bit of the truth. If you were to look at Nehemiah and say, well, the cupbearer of the king ran away from the king and is now building his home in his home, you know, palace, his home nation up under the king with the king's money, you could easily make the case that he's rebelling against the king. There's enough there to say that's happening. And if you have eyes to see the world through that, then that's all you'll see. But if you have eyes that see truth, then you'll see that Nehemiah is actually doing something which is much higher. And he tells us this when he responds in verse 20. He says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we are, are his servants, and we are going to start building. But you have no share, claim, or historic right here in Jerusalem. So let's talk about feelings and meaning. It's an important part of the culture war going on, the spiritual warfare in our world. And yes, if, if you don't have the eyes to recognize that we're in spiritual warfare, you need to. Um, time exists. Time is a thing. You know, God is slow to anger. Not that God doesn't get angry. God does get angry. The stuff we have going on in our culture is not something which happened overnight. It's not just about a coronavirus. It's not just about some incident over here or there of injustice. This is stuff that's been building for a long time because evil forces have been trying to take meaning away from our culture. We have a culture that is held hostage to counterfeit virtues. And I want us to look at our own lives and ask the question of what are our aspirations and what are our goals? What eyes and ears do we use when we look at the world? Do you have aspirations and goals in your life? Look at your friends. Look at your family. What do they aspire for? When you look at the world around you, do you only have eyes and ears for the topics that the idolatrous God of this age wants you to talk about? 
When you look everywhere, do you see things like power struggles and class warfare? You know, that's Marxism. That's not what the gospel tells us to look at. The gospel tells us to look out there at the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, and see that there is something better for them than just the suffering and chaos of this world. That the gospel of Christ Jesus wants to love them out of that and take them to a higher place. We don't love into brokenness. We love out of brokenness. You know, prepositions are very important. I know a lot of times we use vague language without articles or prepositions, but they are very important. We must not be vague, but very, very specific. God doesn't love us for our weakness or brokenness. He loves us despite them. So even when we look at the worlds that are or the topics that our world wants us to talk about, do we discuss them using the lenses of the gospel? Do we look at them through the events 2,000 years ago when Christ died on a cross and three days later resurrected? Or do we only talk about them using the terminology and language that the world presents us? You see, here's something which the modern world doesn't want you to know. If you are willing to have the conversation with the serpent on whether or not the fruit is good for food, then you have agreed with the serpent that his terms, that his eyes that focus in on the aspect of the fruit being good, that those eyes are correct. And that's how you should be viewing the world. That's how you should be doing things. And let's be honest, fruit is good for food. That's a, a truth. That's a fundamental truth. But that wasn't the true picture of what was going on in that scene. If all of your news stories, if all of your emails, if all of your conversations were about fruit is good for food, if you would be there and kind of take the story of Adam and Eve to the modern day and age, if all the emails, all the commercials are like, yes, fruit is good for food, you should do it, um, you're missing the point. You have given over to evil forces. You have surrendered yourself to a scam that takes you closer to evil and death. We, as the faithful, we need to be wise as serpents, but not serpents. The scripture tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're not here to just be another serpent because then there's no alternative to the world. The eyes of this world want to bring us down to their level and see the world the way they do. But God wants us to bring us up to his kingdom and see the beauty and nobility that he designed for us. The spiritual warfare that is being endured in our culture, it is a battle of belief systems, and it comes down to you and how you know God. We truly are in a battle of belief systems right now. And don't think that just because you're in a church, you're free of the idolatrous belief systems. Idols always come to infect the church. There are always people, even in the time of Nehemiah, who want to set something up in the temple that shouldn't be there. There will be people who want to have programs in your university that shouldn't be there. There will be people who want to say things from the pulpit that aren't of the gospel but are of the idols of this age. And it's tragic because a lot of times people do this, think that they're somehow bringing in a new era of the church when really they've just been worked over by the spirit of the age. Giving people meaning is what I want us to talk about because this is one of the ways that we push back. Giving people meaning is not the same thing as giving people what they want or affirming their feelings or desires. And as we grow in wisdom, we discover that meaning and joy often comes from things in life that we could not desire. And we wouldn't desire on our own. Sometimes we find that the things that we love and find joy in, they are opposed to our carnal desires. One of the reasons why this idolatrous God of this age, and that's the name I've given the evil that we're fighting against, it's bigger than all the stuff around us, whether it be politics, you know, whatever it is, it's bigger than all this. What we see going on it was able to take over our culture by inch by inch, taking away meaning, taking meaning away from people. And it replaced meaning with instant gratification. 
And you can tell that this is really taking over our culture by the way that we have responded to the coronavirus. We've responded to it in such a way that says, if you do not bow to the instant gratification of whatever the impulse is that moment, and not like a long-term impulse that's coming from a Christian worldview, but an impulse that's coming from a sinful worldview. If you don't bow down to the instant gratification of, well, you've got to do something, you've got to close that, you've got to do this, then you're told that you're a horrible person. Our young people, they had meaning taken away from them. They were told that it would be good. Just get a trophy for existing. Have your feelings affirmed. Whatever you feel in a moment, let that be true. Your truth. Live your truth. If you've lived long enough, you know that your thoughts in the moment are often wrong. That's why you need a larger imp, in, in, an impulse coming from a larger belief system that can account for things bigger than you. We shouldn't be instant gratification stuff and whatever. You know, looking to the to the Gospels, when the paralyzed man is brought to Jesus by his friends, and you get a few different versions of this in the synoptic Gospels, but they're all principally the same. When this man is brought to Jesus, Jesus realizes that people are upset with him because Jesus is challenging the status quo. You know, Jesus is not a Sadducee. Jesus is not part of the Sanhedrin. He's not a Pharisee. Um, Jesus is not a scribe. Jesus is not someone who has a conversation, or he's not someone that has a seat at the table. You know, a lot of times we're told you got to have a seat at the table. No, you don't. It's a lie. And when the people that do have that seat at the table, they look at Jesus and say, he's challenging the status quo. Jesus looks back at him and says, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. And that's the Matthew 9, 5 um, reference I just read there. In truth, both are impossible to say by human authority. You can kind of say them, but they don't mean anything. But to actually say them and have some authority behind it that means something it takes an act of God. And what we find from that is Jesus gives freedom and meaning to the paralyzed man in saying that and liberating them. When he heals the man, Jesus gives him both freedom and meaning. Both of those statements liberate a man from a life of pitiful desperation and give him opportunity for something higher. When Jesus deals with the demoniacs in Matthew 8, he doesn't say a word to the people that are possessed and oppressed by the demons. Doesn't ask him how they feel, doesn't ask him what their experience is, or to say, oh, tell me your story. He doesn't do a single thing to that. In fact, in the whole episode you get in Matthew 8, he says a single word. He says the word, hupagete, which means go. You know, he casts him out. He basically is Clint Eastwood saying, out. Jesus doesn't even ask the afflicted people. He doesn't even ask the man who's carried in by his friends. He doesn't ask any of them what they feel or need. But instead, he pursues something deeper. He liberates them so they can pursue goodness in life. Jesus opens the door that their soul is being no longer contaminated by sin and forces of evil. Jesus opens the door for them to pursue meaning. And he doesn't just sedate them with the momentary covering. Because a lot of times we're told, give us the comfort of the moment. Tell people what they want to hear and move on. You know, you'll, you'll clean stuff up later. But we got to, you know, if we, if we don't tell people what they want now, there'll be no later. No, 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 it's a lie. You don't have to have a seat at the world's table. You don't have to make some sort of compromise now. It is a lie. Now, it probably won't be liked by people, and you probably won't be politically popular, but stand on biblical principles, and you will be fine. And the battle that we have now, and our, our young people, and all people living in this current generation, really, but our young people have been sold feelings over meaning, and it's so sad because that makes them easy prey for evil. That's why they do want to tear everything down, because they haven't been shown the great aspirational vision. The battle between feelings and meaning is a crucial one in our culture spiritual warfare. 
our young people are having this belief system of feelings injected straight into their veins. And you know, feelings are something that we have. And I'm not here to say that we should ignore emotions, though we're, I don't see anyone in this world that's being taught to ignore emotions. Right now, people are taught to exaggerate emotions. Um, you know, you train a child to be potty trained and to have some continence, um, and continence is a good thing. Right now, our young people are being trained to be emotionally incontinent. And the people who have a lot of power over our culture and our worldly power, I should say, they have emotional incontinence. In other words, just no control. And it's very sad. That's destructive. You know, the fruits are in on this. Overemphasizing emotions does not produce a better world. Telling people that you've got to go debrief. Uh, you, you, we know you're a man. You're, you're suppressing emotions. No. Actually, if you look at the spectrum of human behavior, it, it's probably a lie if somebody's telling you hiding emotions. Um, there are people who hide emotions, but it's, it's, it's this is 2020, y'all. This is not... Um, 100 years ago. This is 2020, and, and a lot of this stuff is, is a sham. It's a scam to get you to, to be impulsive on sinful impulses rather than live out a biblical worldview. Tragically, the idolatrous God of this age has really infected all of our institutions with this method of thinking, this emotional incontinence. I mean, it's, it's like a shoulder. You know, a shoulder is a fundamental part of the body, but if a shoulder gets dislocated, it's not very useful, and, and it's quite painful, and you've got to have something else to fix that. Our emotional reactions to the world are dislocated. They're outsized. They're outrageous. And we need something which is more moved by the Christian Christ-like impulse. And this has infected all of our institutions. Yes, including our Christian institutions. We're to the point now where don't really trust or believe anything that comes out of anyone's mouths, but instead weigh the fruits of what their ideas, what their principles have, have produced over time. And when we look to our world, we are held captive to these counterfeit and vague virtues. We're told, well, this is an empathetic message. It comes from somebody's sadness, their sorrows, their personal experience. You need to hear that. Well, the truth is, is we're held captive to the most emotional and empathetic messages of the world. But these are counterfeit empathy. Empathy is a, is a Christian virtue. But empathy that is cut off from truth, empathy that is surrounded by people bearing false witness, that is a counterfeit. And we're held captive to counterfeit virtues. And again, just because someone can say something out of their mouth don't mean it's, it's true or sincere. And that's why you have to weigh fruits across time because that'll take you closer to the truth than will just the words in a moment. I know we're kind of trained that time doesn't exist, that you know when somebody makes a request, it's not like they've been inching away of our culture, but we have to weigh out the fruits of our world. When it comes to emotions and feelings, and comparing that to nobility and long-term meaning, there is a fundamental difference. There's a big difference between emphasizing feelings in the moment and pursuing long-term meaning. One cannot be given a trophy for achieving nothing and also be encouraged to achieve at the same time. The pursuit of meaning, it comes at a cost and it requires us to change the way we organize our lives. Nehemiah cannot be a cupbearer to a Persian king and be building the wall of Jerusalem at the same time. And I find it fascinating in that text. You know, the king, he wants to know when Nehemiah will return. When will he be back? I know you can read that a few ways. Maybe he thinks Nehemiah is just going to go size it up and come back with a plan. But regardless of how you read it, the king likes Nehemiah. And he's like, I, I kind of want you to come back to me. But the truth is, is Nehemiah is never going to return. Nehemiah will never be the same man after these events. 
Pursuing God means he's giving up those comforts of being an unsuspecting servant who gets to travel and live with the king and eat the king's food and, you know, wear nice robes in the presence of the king, stuff like that. Uh-uh. Nehemiah, for the rest of his life, he's basically going to be cut and covered in blood, sweat, and tears. And I don't mean tears of sorrow, but tears of, you know, hard labor. Nehemiah is going to be covered in the blood and sweat of construction work and sword wielding. He's going to fight the enemies of God because the enemies of God are out there. And I find it so fascinating. Sambalot and Tobiah, when they see Nehemiah roll into town, they say, that man won't play the game. Why won't he go along with the status quo? He's supposed to shut up. He's supposed to shut up and listen to the experts, to the scholars. He's supposed to listen to somebody with credentials. You know, he hadn't even ever ran a construction site. What's he doing coming over here? You know, go over there and get another Jewish scholar who's spent 30 years in construction. Get him over here because he doesn't want to build the walls. Nehemiah is wanting to do something different. Stop him. Sambalot and Tobiah, they hate Nehemiah because he won't play the game. The serious brows, the firm terms, and those, those hushed tones. They were all playing a stupid game. There's a level of stupidity that comes when people don't have eyes and ears to see the world that God wants them to. And you can have credentials. You can have, um, I mean, you can, you can be a pastor. You can have credentials. You can have years of experience and still not see the bigger picture. And our world wants us to see the world through its eyes. Sambalot and Tobiah don't want Nehemiah to come. They hate it. But in the end, we should we should be like Nehemiah. The gospel is a threat to them. The holiness of God is a threat to them, and the gospel is a threat to the world around us. It's a threat to those worldly belief systems. And that's why it only wants us to talk about certain topics on the terms of the world without the question of sin and holiness on the table. The world wants you to believe that all people are inherently good and that human nature is inherently good. You know, I always find it fascinating. In the church, we we take a, a stance on politics that say, well, politics is corrupt and corrupting, so we don't talk about it from the pulpit. So why in the world we would say, well, just go along with CDC guidelines and stuff like that. But you, you think they're sanctified at the CDC, that they're not also corrupt and corrupting? You think that people like that, like you, you can't hold the idea that the church shouldn't talk about politics and then the idea that the church should also go along with a bureaucracy of the government because that somehow is not going to be corrupt or corrupting. is just ridiculous. You can't hold those two ideas at the same time. Human nature is not basically good. Unless people are saved by the Lord and Savior and have the Holy Spirit working on their life, they're not going to be inherently good. It's just, it's it. The absence of meaning and the elevation of emotion really has produced terrible fruits. It has produced a culture where suicides are common, marriages are down, and our young men and women lack aspirations to achieve. Rather than looking up to great noble achievements, our youth are told to find meaning in equality. Which, again, you know, the only way that the world can create equality through human means is to reduce everyone down to the lowest commonality. And you, you have to have uneven scales to do that because not everybody's going to respond to the world the same way. Erasing history and removing meaning from the public sphere is really the only way that you can create equality by the human means. And we see that everywhere. The fruits of all these people who talk equality are to remove meaning, are to remove aspiration, are, in, are to reduce things down. It's not an aspirational. It's not anything of God, and it's very sad because it infects the people of God. The world wants to tell us that you're good enough like you are. Affirm, be affirmed where you are. Don't be challenged to achieve anything. And it's sad because there is such a reward in achieving. There's such a reward in pursuing high things of God. But our world doesn't want people to have that joy. It says just have a trophy for existing, but don't taste the true joy of living with God. 
And with Nehemiah, he couldn't be happy with the broken walls. And it made people mad. They're like, Nehemiah, can't you just be happy living in ruins? Well, no. Nehemiah can't. People might say, well, can't you just be like all the other Jewish men and women out there? Well, no, he can't. Because his God is holy and therefore he must be holy. Nehemiah was supposed to be invisible to the world, but yet his name is now marking one of the books in our Holy Scriptures. And Nehemiah had eyes that saw meaning, and he saw something beyond the things that the world wanted us to see. You know, the church, it shouldn't be in lockstep with the the conversations the world wants us to have. Yeah, we have to address stuff, but we don't have to address stuff as well. You know, sometimes when the serpent wants to talk about something, it is because he wants to distract you. There are a lot of conversations the church wants to have right now, which keeps evils alive rather than letting them, you know, go away. And I don't care what the intentions people have. If you are willing to have the conversation with the serpent, on whether or not the fruit is good for food, which is based in an element of truth, though it's also at the cost of other truths. If you're willing to do that, you have told him that his eyes and ears are correct. And then that's good enough. That's a sufficient way to see the world. We don't need to do that. You don't have to have a seat at that table. You can be like Nehemiah, have a vision, cast that vision, and pull people along with it as we walk towards God. Nehemiah understood that these walls were much more than just walls. Even though he didn't have a particularly masculine occupation, he was nothing of a wimp. He, he actually was a real man. Um, and he, in fact, you, you kind of know the history of a position like that and being an exile as cupbearer. It is absolutely shocking to, to see how many Jewish men would not stand up for what was right, how so many of them didn't have a backbone. And it took this cupbearer to the king to find a backbone. It took Nehemiah to find a backbone. He was the only man that was willing to be a man, to step up and say, it's time for men to be men. He saw the years of decay that had slowly crept along and eroded the uniqueness of the people of God. Their symbols of excellence fell to visible shame and weakness. And Nehemiah said, that time is over. We're, we're not doing that. Our God is a strong and awesome God, and we're created in his image, so therefore we should be strong as well. And Jesus teaches us that goodness and nobility begin between you and God. And it is something which occurs across time. You look in Matthew 7, 3-5, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck and sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, but when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the biblical model for finding meaning and affecting our world, and it's something our world doesn't want us to know. Our world wants you to think that change is found through top-down models with representatives and experts, but the biblical model says it starts with you. You as an individual, you answer the call of God and let that spread to your brothers and sisters, your friends, your family, your neighborhood. It spreads like a fire. It doesn't come something from the top down, but instead it spreads out. And God challenges us to pursue noble and honorable goals as we structure our lives with him. This is how we change the world. Not by having all the answers that the world demands, but by not waiting on others to act. When part of the body is dislocated or injured, the other parts of the body have to take initiative. We must be personally involved in the spiritual warfare of our time, and we need to prioritize investing in our young men and women teaching them to have eyes and ears for the meaningful nobility. You know, I know I've talked a lot about Nehemiah stepping up the plate to be a man, but um, men and women are different. It's fine to say that. We have a noble design. We're equally essential in the eyes of God. And But 
there are different aspects of, of life as men and women. And, you know, Queen Esther, she rises to the plate too. She has a visible evil that she gets up and she stands up and says, this is what being a godly woman looks like. We're going to stop Haman. We need young men and young women to look up to characters like Esther and Nehemiah and say, you know what? It's not good enough just to sit here and do nothing. Just to sit here and go along with it and see what the world wants me to see. It's not good enough. We can't wait on others to act. Instead, we have to fear God, fear Him alone. We aspire to righteousness before Him, and we must go out of our way to dissolve the dishonest gains in our world. Our young people, they've been sold lives without meaning, and we need to push back on that by showing people meaning, modeling that role for them, and giving them the biblical heroes that say aspire, achieve, build things, do stuff with your hand. Don't go off and be somewhere where you can spew out terrible and awful ideas and have no accountability, but do something which has the reward of finding out if it works. Is it real? Build something. Build something like a wall, like the palace, the pool there. The great things that Nehemiah talks about, build them. There's achievement and joy in finding that. There's something to be, you know, take some, some personal initiative in and then see the beauty of it when it's over. There's nobility in that. So let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. God love you, and have a blessed day.